1: When you look at pictures of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, what are the images that stick with you? Do you keep thinking about that guy with the horns and the face paint? Or one of the people waving enormous flags inside the rotunda? Maybe it's the guys with flexicuffs you can't get out of your head. Matt Rosenberg was there on January 6th. He reports for the New York Times. The people he can't stop thinking about are the ones who, a lot of the time, are just outside the frame.
0: People who were caught up in the moment. They were just ordinary people. They had not gone there planning to assault the Capitol.
1: These were the people egging the extremists and the vandals on. And seeing those people left Matt. With
0: a lot of questions, I remember talking to some of those people: school teachers, firemen, you know, office workers. You just have this utterly ordinary kind of swath of Americans, and, and they're there cheering on, you know, somebody ransacking, attempting to ransack the Capitol, and potentially violently harm or disrupt kind of the workings of government, the certification election, and the members of Congress and their staff. And how do they all get there?
1: Once Matt started wondering how these people got there, he started to wonder what was going to happen when they went home. So far, around 400 people have been charged for what they did on January 6th, but that's just a fraction of the people who were in the crowd that day.
0: And, you know, there's only so much I think you're going to learn from the organized kind of investigation to looking into the actual groups, you know, what can be prosecuted, you know, who spoke to who, what was on message board. And there's something larger here that we all have to try and understand is why were thousands of people cheering on an assault on the capital of our own country?
1: Today on the show, we're going to tell the story of one of these ordinary people and what happened when her hometown found out where she'd been. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. A few days after January 6th, Matt Rosenberg was talking to an old friend, a guy who lives in San Clemente, California. That's Orange County. Some people call this area the cradle of Reaganism. It's a conservative place in a generally liberal state. Matt's friend mentioned this local elementary school teacher who'd been in D.C. for the Stop the Steel rally and was facing questions now that she was back. It was becoming a huge neighborhood drama, actually. There was a petition going around, calling for an investigation, And then a counter-petition cropped up, supporting her. And all this was a surprise, because by all accounts, this teacher, Christine Hostetter's her name. She had been a superstar.
0: I mean, from everyone I talked to, from the people who wanted her fired to the people who thought she was, like, being railroaded and and a terrible injustice was being done to her, they all agreed she was a great teacher. Hmm. And their kids loved her.
1: What made her great?
0: She was kind and caring and gentle, one parents said, you know, they had a kid who was probably borderline ADHD, you know, but very kind of jumpy and easily distracted. And she could just put them at ease. And they came home, they seemed to learn what they needed to learn. They seemed to really like going to school with her. And I think, you know, when you've got a nine-year-old, if they like going to school, that's a good sign their teacher's doing a job.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, she just seemed to have a really gentle touch with these kids.
1: Before we go much further, I want to say, You're not going to hear Christine Hostetter's voice in this episode, even though that's who we're talking about. That's because Christine was one of those people on January 6th who was just outside the frame. She was a supporting player in her husband's many videos and photos. She wasn't part of the attack, as far as we know. But she certainly seemed to support the spirit of the Stop the Steal campaign. Matt says it's kind of weird. Her politics hadn't always been obvious to her neighbors or family.
0: That's the thing. I don't think a lot of people noticed it. I talked to her niece who said, you know, growing up, she seemed maybe conservative, but the whole area seemed conservative. She had been previously married twice before um, as two kids from a prior marriage and, and got divorced somewhere. But in around 2014, 2015, she met Alan Hausfeder. He, at that point, was a former infantry soldier who would become a police chief who had retired and had serious back issues so had a series of surgeries and then taken up yoga. And by the time she met him, he was fully into his transformation into a third career as a yoga guru.
1: Quite a transformation from police chief to yoga instructor. Very much so. Very California.
0: Exactly. And his specialty was sound healing with gongs and Tibetan bowls and, and other instruments. And so she meets him and they seem to immediately hit it off. Her niece and her niece's husband, though, noticed at their wedding, there was a small party to celebrate their wedding, that there were a group of people there, a group of friends of, of Alan and Christine who kept asking like, if they were going to vote for Trump. This is kind of mid-2016. And, you know, the niece and the niece's husband thought, oh, this is a little weird, you know, but they didn't really think much of it. Christine seemed incredibly happy. He seemed like a good guy. So, you know, maybe they were voting for Trump. We don't know. But, you know, no biggie. Like, that's not our problem. And then it was sometime after the pandemic starts the spring last year, they first start noticing his postings on his social media, Facebook and Instagram, getting pretty radical, you know, pretty extreme, pretty anti-COVID.
1: Yeah, what'd they look like?
0: You know, just a lot of that kind of, you know, this is a conspiracy, the government can't tell me what to do. Um, just that kind of talk. And they, they were surprised by that. They were taken back by it. And at first, by all accounts, Christine kind of sort of kept her distance. You know, teachers at the school might ask her about it and and she would say, well, that's Alan's thing. That's not my thing. But then the protest started getting louder and and more extreme. USA! 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 There was a protest in May in which Alan and seven other people had tried to tear down a fence that had been erected to close off San Clemente's Beach um, Hmm. during the uh, lockdown. We want to take the fence down, and I'll be happy to go with you after that. And if you want to arrest me for something after that, I'll be more than happy to go with you. But I'm not going to let go of this fence. The fence isn't coming. Okay. All right. You're called. You know what? He's arrested, and and next thing you know, she's got a GoFundMe page up raising money for him um, and the seven other people that are calling them the San Clemente 8 or something. He joined a lawsuit trying to sue California to get rid of COVID restrictions. that failed. And I think that rhetoric really started amping up. And that's when people really began to notice, like, wait, what's going on here? Why is this person, the teacher, out here really joining in?
1: Alan Hostetter started an organization to brand his protests and lawsuits. He called the group the American Phoenix Project.
0: Basically, the, the, the symbolism of the country rising out of the ashes of this mess that we are in. Christine
1: Hostetter, was listed as one of the officers on the group's incorporation papers,
0: and I think you know he also began to really kind of aggressively engage with people on social media. So you know a number of people shared with me messages he had sent that that they took as threatening. There was one in which you know somebody disagreed with him post on some Facebook posts, and he then um, direct messaged them from the American Phoenix account inviting them to kind of come find him, referring to them as a snowflake, inviting them to come find him and talk to him in person, and then suggesting they might want to look into what he was doing you know 20 years ago.
1: which is he was a cop.
0: Yes. and, and that that if once they find that out, they might think twice about coming to find him. That's a pretty aggressive you know statement to make to a stranger.
1: And then there was this story that Christine was yelling at people about masks herself, right?
0: Yeah, I've heard a few of those. That seemed to have started later in the year. The most detailed one I heard was on the beach around Thanksgiving time when she just went up to a family that had masks on. And was accosting them. She had her granddaughter in tow, apparently. Um, but there seemed to have been a number of other instances as well throughout the summer and into the fall where she began accosting people who, who were wearing masks in public.
1: So did this start a buzz at the time, like in the in the winter among maybe parents of students or, or people at the school?
0: It did among some. And that's, I think, one of the crucial things here is that there are a great many parents who agree with her. You know, they maybe are more subtle about it. They may be a little more sophisticated about it, but they totally agree with her and agree with her husband's politics. But there are also, you know, a number of parents who are liberal, um, some students, older students in the high school and elsewhere in the district who have started an anti-racism group who were keeping an eye on them, and they were keeping tabs. When I first started talking to people and calling them up out there, everyone was like, yeah, it's really no big deal. You know, everybody's, you know, we disagree, sure, but nobody's too upset about it. But here are 127 screen grabs <laughs> from <laughs> Alan and his friends' accounts um, and private Facebook groups I thought you might want to see. Um, there seemed to be a lot of that going on.
1: A lot of people keeping the
0: receipts. Yeah, exactly. They're all keeping the receipts. It seemed like by the fall, everybody's keeping an eye on each other in ways that, that didn't seem quite healthy. Ordinary, I guess.
1: Hmm. Okay, so January,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it becomes clear that Alan Hostetter and his wife Christine, they're going to go to this what what initially was called a rally on January 6th, and in fact go a little bit early because they had other rallies they wanted to attend, like a rally at the Supreme Court, and they're also bringing some friends from Orange County. They've they've made connections with people with deep pockets, and and all of them are flying out, it seems like, almost as a group, to be part of all this. We're on the march heading from the hotel to the Ellipse. Oh wait, I have not said hello to my beautiful bride sitting there with the American flag looking all fly.
0: She's carrying the torch 1776 again.
1: When did the local community begin to see what they were doing in Washington? And what did they see? Like, how how much posting did they do?
0: You know, there were people in the community who noticed this as it was going on, because it's coming up on their social media. Within a day, kind of screen grabs of Christine, pictures of her, In Washington are kind of going around. People are messaging them to each other. They're tweeting them at each other and that that is is kind of what gets people, you know, going and saying, well, what's going on here? What did she do? Did she take part in this attack? We need to know. And uh,
1: Alan Hostetter is being pretty clear in these videos, saying stuff like, you know, this is our 1776. You know, we're going to get as close as we can. We're going to march to freedom. And then Christine my understanding is she's just, she's there.
0: Yes. And, you know, this has been Christine's kind of position in a lot of ways throughout the whole thing where she's there, you know, she's clearly marching. She looks like a a happy and and, and engaged participant, but she's behind the scenes. She's kind of the, the person behind the person and it's hard to tell, you know, where exactly she is on all of this.
1: How are these screen grabs shared? Like, were people texting each other? Were people on group chats, like, within a few days?
0: So while this is happening and kind of throughout the summer, uh, a group of students and former students in the, in the high schools of the area had organized their own anti-racism organization kind of in response to the George Floyd killing and the civil rights protests that swept the country. And they had started this group. They called it CUSD. That's a Capistrana Unified School District. So CUSD Against Racism. And they started with, with an open letter in which they had kind of you know list of demands. They wanted the school district to endorse BLM to stand up against white supremacy, and then a bunch of curriculum demands about an explicitly anti-racist curriculum, more minority hiring, more, more mental health counselors for minority students. I, I think a lot of requests or demands that would be pretty familiar um, to anybody who's kind of followed progressive politics the last six months or a year. So they had also kind of been keeping an eye on the American Phoenix Project, I think, that had been on their radar because, you know, it's it's a pretty far-right group. And if you're worried about these issues, you know, that's something you definitely want to know about. And so they started, the kind of founders of this group started, you know, got people text them with a picture of Christine. And then they started texting amongst each other saying, well, what do we do here? And one of the founders of this group, she was one of
1: Miss Hostetter's former students.
0: Yep. Esther Mafuta, who is now a freshman at Columbia. And when I spoke to her, she had only really fond memories of her time in Mrs. Hostetter's class and said, you know, that she thought she was a great teacher. If there was any bias, she didn't sense it. Um, I think Esther now has, you know, said, well, maybe I didn't see it. Maybe I was too young. Um, But she has no memories of anything
1: Hmm.
0: that would kind of suggest that Mrs. Hostetter treated her differently or Acted differently. Esther, Esther is Black, by the way.
1: Yeah. I mean, so Esther and her friends and colleagues, they started a petition to hold Ms. Hostetter accountable for what she did. And I was reading it, and it was notable to me that this petition wasn't explicitly calling for Ms. Hostetter to be fired, necessarily. It was saying, there needs to be an investigation if there's criminal activity. You know, we do believe that someone who's committed a criminal act against the United States, they shouldn't be teaching. But it was inter- it was interesting to me to read the petition because it was pretty carefully worded.
0: It was incredibly carefully worded, um, and I think the group is is fairly savvy that way that they understand that you don't want to condemn something until you know all the facts. And, and they just wanted to know what had happened. They wanted to know like, what was Mrs. Hostetter's, Mrs. Hostetter's role in all this. Did she attack the Capitol? You know, we need to know these facts and then we can kind of go from there. And so they were demanding an investigation. And, you know, interestingly, that petition was, was very, very tightly focused on what had happened on January 6th. Um, you know, they didn't really go into her politics in any kind of deep dive way. But along with that petition, they also had a kind of pre-written email that you could then send on to the school district, which brought up racism and anti-Semitism and kind of more broadly kind of got at what our politics were and the need to look into them. And, and that's a lot of what then provoked the reaction.
1: So how did the school system respond when this petition started making the rounds and and also these letters that the group put together for folks to send?
0: So they, they did suspend the teacher pretty quickly and launch an investigation, but they also seemed, at least members of the school board and others, seemed, you know, not incredibly happy about the whole situation. I know that I spoke to the school board president. She had, in a response to these kind of form letters, written to some parents kind of decrying when, when did we not teach kids the difference between innocent, like innocent and proving guilty and kind of suggesting that kids didn't know, you know, how to be fair. And that's when the other parents kick in that a bunch of other parents calling themselves parents for teachers' rights, throw up their own petition, insisting, you know, that she is being scapegoated and asking, you know, if they start firing teachers for their political beliefs, what's next? religious differences, um, and you get that counter petition very quickly. And people immediately start going to their corners.
1: It seems a little disingenuous to me, the counter petition just because it says these students are trying to get Miss Hostetter fired. And I thought, well, Is that what they're trying to do? I mean, they're asking for an investigation. They're asking for her to be suspended. Okay. But it did strike me that each person was, like, ratcheting up the tension here.
0: They were. I mean, that's the only thing. You get this kind of that quick cycle where everybody's kind of egging each other on. So the first petition is, you know, it's strident but moderate. It is fair and asked for an investigation. But coming out of that, it's pretty clear when you talk to people who supported that, That what they want investigated isn't just the time the capital. They want her, her, the American Phoenix project investigated, her politics investigated, and that you know their belief in many cases is that if she does share these views or have these views, that maybe she shouldn't be teaching. You know that conversation doesn't take long to kind of get to that. This
1: incident, do you get any sense that there was that it served as like a moment of reflection for the school district where they thought, okay. These two people who are on opposite sides here, but there are real things we need to address about Miss Hostetter maybe, but maybe
0: more globally. The sense I get is that if there was some reflection, it was quick, and everybody kind of went straight back to their corners, that there was not a whole lot of soul searching from anyone about, well, what does this say about our community? Like, How do we not kind of ape the worst of our national politics and end up kind of shouting past each other? How do we find a way to, to ask those questions? Like, why is a teacher out there accosting people on the street? And if she's a great teacher, how do we then get that to stop and channel the best of her and 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 get other parents who who want to be involved? Everybody kind of come together and figure this out and move forward together. There was not a whole lot of that, I can
1: tell. Hmm. How long was Miss Hostetter suspended
0: for? She returned to class on March 15th. Um, now the investigation seemed pretty narrow from what we can tell after the fact. You know, they were looking primarily into had she done anything in the Capitol. And um and the investigator found she'd done nothing unlawful.
1: And did she be investigated by police or by federal authorities?
0: So we don't believe so. Um her husband's group did attract the FBI, and both her home was raided and, and the her husband's partner in the American in fact, their homes were raided by the FBI in early. February, But no arrests were made. No charges have been drawn up or suggested. And the sense that we have of that investigation is that they were kind of, it was more than checking boxes. They were going after people who would help organize things, take part in things.
1: After the break, what happened when Christine Hostetter got reinstated at school?
0: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Do you think what happened here is a story about Alan Hostetter and what he did wrong? Or his wife, Christine? And does it matter?
0: It's it's really hard. I mean, I think that it's a story of this moment right now because we're not doing very good separating people from their partners, from their friends from their business associates in any meaningful way in a lot of areas of life. And, and this is another feature of that. You know, Christine, the community had seen some of her actions. They got a, got a broad sense of, their, of her politics, but she wasn't out there that vocal. So everybody sort of filled in the blanks. And he was the easiest, kind of provided the information you needed to fill in those blanks. And so had he been a lot less vocal, this might have just kind of disappeared. And, and then on top of it, I think it's also this kind of, the past year in talking to people, between COVID, between George Floyd and, and the protests that followed and the other killings that have followed, stop the steal, the election, the attack on the Capitol, has all just kind of blended together into this giant kind of blob in people's minds. And separating each strand out can be very difficult, um, even when thinking through it. So somebody who, you know, was kind of involved in one thing, suddenly kind of becomes part of the whole for the rest. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here as well.
1: So being at the Capitol means you're anti Black Lives Matter.
0: Exactly, and and when you're anti Black Lives Matter, it's you know you're not anti the kind of broader political movement. You're anti the entire idea. Um, and, and, that, and it's a tricky one, and and it's, and that goes. That's where the race issue really comes in here, because this is an incredibly difficult question. You know. There was We could find no evidence, and we looked, I like really went over this, of anything that I think most people would consider overt racism, you know, using slurs, actively discriminating or treating the, you know, a black person or Latino person as different or less than. We could find nothing in, in Christine's kind of past to suggest any of that. And even Alan, for all the extremism of the American Phoenix Project, this is a Southern, Southern California group that makes no mention of immigrants at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't seem anti-immigrant in any meaningful way. And and so, you know, to a lot of people in the community, and I think to a lot of Americans, to them, like, okay, she's not a racist. That's the end of the end of the discussion. But then to many other people, it's like, well, wait, you know, she's at a rally with people who are waving confederate flags with a guy who's wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. There are many people there who were just open white supremacists, even if she's not, um, even if she doesn't agree with them, she's comporting with them. So, what do we make of her? Is she a racist? Is she not? Like, what's the definition here? How do we define this? And then, how do we act upon it? And and that's, you know, that's a debate that's raging. I think that we're far from kind of settling anywhere.
1: How does Christine Hostetter see what's happened to her over the last few months?
0: So, because she said so little, it's very hard to tell. But we do have one indication. So, she gets back to school on the 15th. Now, when her suspension began back in January, the news of this was broken by the San Clemente high school newspaper, the Triton Times.
1: So high school journalists.
0: High school journalists broke it, you know.
1: You love to see it.
0: Exactly. So, so they break the story and um, she's suspended. She comes back on March 15th. And then at the end of that week, she writes an email to the advisor to the student newspaper, which we um, reviewed. And in the email, she asks... If there's going to be another story now that she's been cleared. And she then kind of goes on to say that, you know, these students maybe need to think about their own biases and whether they reflect their work. The exact quote is, if I was teaching students about journalism, I might consider a discussion about bias in the media, fact checking and journalistic integrity. And then in a second email says they should probably reflect on whether they allow their own biases or that of their peers to influence their articles. So she seems totally, you know, unapologetic about any of this. Yeah. And then she ends it by saying, I will not be available for an interview, however. So she also makes it clear she doesn't talk about it anymore.
1: When you reached out to her, what did she
0: say? So they just did not respond. You know, I I reached out to them. I went to their home. um, I knocked on the door. I know there were there people there, there were lights on inside a gear commotion, and nobody even came to the door. So I left a note with my business card, and I have not heard a peep out of them.
1: Christine Hostetter has been back at school, teaching, for over a month now. Matt says a lot of parents are just relieved the investigation is over. But the community is still a little raw about it.
0: There are also a lot of parents who just flat out agree with her. You know, I spoke to parents who... Who are like, yeah, no, I believe the election was stolen. I absolutely believe the election was stolen. And 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 to make it clear, this is not like the kind of backwoods community of kind of the liberal imagination, you know, ignorant hicks of some sort, just believing anything. This is a community of multi-million dollar homes where every Monday morning or weekday morning when they line up to kind of get into school, there's a little traffic jam that starts. I mean, it's literally Tesla's Mercedes, Range Rovers. This is This is the American dream. It's conceived by many people. You know, there are beaches, there's ocean, California, it's wealthy. Um, So these are not kind of poor, ignorant people with no means to kind of find out things. And a great many of them do believe the election was stolen. So there are those parents who are just, they're happy to have her back because they think it's great and they have no issue with her being there, no issue with her politics whatsoever. Then there are other parents who are like, look, she's back, but we're not happy about it. Somebody passed on an email from another parent um, a few days after Miss Hofstetter came back, parents were emailing about organizing a birthday party for her in class her birthday was coming up. And one parent wrote, frankly, it's hard to get stoked about sending flowers and birthday cards to a classroom teacher who appears to align herself with a conspiratorial social movement and embraces the racist values of QAnon. Hmm. Um, so I, I think there is some real division there still. for people in the media and others as we think about this going forward, it's really easy to say, like, like here's a spectacle, here's the person who believes in something really extreme, and, and here's what they've done, and that, you know, that there are instances across the country of people are, are very much in gray areas, they're behaving in ways that can be incongruous or that people are uncomfortable with, they're maybe a little bit extreme, you don't know, maybe they're really extreme, but that, you know, it's dividing communities, it's making people question one another. It's pitting neighbor against neighbor. People behave in very confusing ways. Um, It's our job also to kind of explore those issues, the ones where there are no easy answers, there's no clear cut, yay or nay, or good or bad, or whatever it is, and that we learn a lot about what our country's going through right now.
1: Matt Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Matt Rosenberg is a reporter for the New York Times. Our team did ask Christine Hostetter if she'd like to provide a comment for this episode. We didn't hear back. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Dal Mary Wilson, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, and Danielle Hewitt. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery make the show sound much sharper each and every day. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned to this feed. Tomorrow, Lizzie O'Leary is going to be here with our Friday show, What Next TBD? She'll be talking about Teslas and whether they really can drive on autopilot or not. You'll want to check it out. Meantime, I'll catch you back here on Monday.